Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. And what we do is we give you little bits of the best interviews you've never heard. And what happens is there's an archive. There's literally, honestly, it's about seven feet away from me right now. And you pull <laughs> open the drawer and there's hundreds of CDs. There's also dat tapes. There's also reel-to-reel tapes, um, uh, all other forms. Plus, we have a whole bunch on hard drive. And it's my job to figure out what's on those CDs, tapes, etc. How many of them are unlabeled? What percentage of them would you say? I would say maybe 25% are unlabeled. And, (laughs) and, And someone had the great idea of taking really detailed notes. But there's giant gaps in some of the notes, too. So while at some points I'm <laughs> thankful for the amount of, well, I'm always thankful for the amount of work that someone did to create these archives, right? Which is, honestly, they're a miracle. But there are moments when I'm going, oh, my God, where is that interview? We have an interview with David Gilmore of Pink Floyd somewhere. And I'm looking, looking, looking. I finally found it. We're going to be playing it in an upcoming episode. But it took forever to find. I was on the phone with a buddy of mine, a guy who's done some of the interviews that we've heard on the show. His name is Rick Ringer. And uh, I said, we were commenting on a couple of interviews that we'd recently played on Famous Lost Words. And I said, what are some of the best interviews that you've ever recorded? And without hesitation he said lemmy of motorhead i went we oh have, we have lemmy <laughs> so i look through wow. we have lemmy honest i listened to it today it's great so in an upcoming episode you are going to hear lemmy and phil the drummer filthy, filthy phil, phil. Think, yeah we're going to hear him <laughs> and lemmy together so that's that's the kind of thing it's not only a discovery for the audience but it, christopher it's a discovery for you and i and that's why we call it famous lost words because quite frankly these interviews had been lost in, to a certain extent for a very long time and now we're playing them we're playing the best parts we're listening to the bad parts of the interview so you don't have to and um having just a great time playing these <laughs> and bless your obsessiveness sir so this week it's really interesting <laughs> why well, you're welcome um this This week, we're really excited because we often lead with, you know, an international artist. We've got Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin. We've got U2 and, and, you know, all the great American artists. And, and, uh, you know, we've done In Excess in the past. But we really want to wave the flag for Canada because we have an extraordinary interview with Tom Cochran done by your friend, Denise Donlan, formerly of Much Music, as you are. And it's just excellent. It's a great piece. Sounds great, Tom. What else we got? Well, Christopher, we have some great stuff from the band ABC from 1982, just as The Look of Love and Poison Arrow were becoming really big hits for them. You and I need to talk about just how great that album was, The Lexicon of Love, so we'll have that chat. We also go back 42 years with a couple of clips from the great B.B. King, one in which he talks about his very famous guitar, Lucille. But wait, which Lucille was it? And you had a great idea called They Should Have Known Better, which is essentially very wrong-headed decisions or songs or choices made by very famous musicians who quite simply should have known better. David Lee Roth, are you listening? But let's get started with Tom Cochran. Life is a Highway, Tom Cochran, one of Canada's greatest songwriters. Go ahead, Christopher. Well, Tom has been making records for 45 years, first with Red Rider and then as a solo artist. He's got a mantle full of Juno Awards, Gold and Platinum Awards, and a Diamond Award for the 91 album Mad Mad World, which included the number one hit, 
Life is a Highway. Tom has gone to Africa many times for World Vision, which he talks about in this interview, and been recognized by the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, the Walk of Fame, and he's also an officer of the Order of Canada. Tom is still out there doing what he does best, singing his heart out on stages across the country. Now, in this interview with my old colleague, Denise Donlan, Tom talks about how Life is a Highway came from a life-changing trip to Africa. You know, I went through some pretty heavy changes over there. You know, we, I probably lived more in those three weeks than any other two- or three-year period of my life. And uh, so I came, you know, you come home and you go through a lot. Of, you, the major culture shock is when you come home, not when you're over there. And uh, I came out of this, this two- or three-week period. I did a lot of press for World Vision and that, the uh, World Relief Organization I went over there with. By the way, they do wonderful work. Uh, so in no way do I want to disparage their work by saying that you know, I wrote Life's a Highway, is, it's probably my happiest song, and I wrote it because I, I, you know, the one thing that I was left with was you know, that feeling of, of, of joy that the, the, uh, the people you know, managed to, uh, to find in the simplest things over there. So in spite of all the hardships in that, um, you, know, you could find you know, they, they would live for the moment when they could. You know, and uh, It's something that I wasn't prepared for. I was prepared for a lot of the, the, the tough things and the hardships that, that I would see, but I wasn't prepared for people that were that resilient. And that impressed me a lot. And I came home and I thought, man, we find everything to complain about over here. You know? So I, wanted, I just wanted to write a song that would, would, would make people feel good and make them realize how short life is and that you, know, you can even turn the most negative thing into a positive experience and that it does nobody any good if you get bogged down in guilt you know, or sidetracked in self-analysis. You just got to keep moving ahead on your individual you know, road in life and deal with people that you come in contact with in good faith and try to do whatever good you can do along the road and uh, as opposed to trying to or thinking you can change the whole world all at once because nobody can, no individual can but uh, uh, you can make a small step by just being uh, you know, dealing with other people in good faith. On top of that, you know, when, when they do find that, you know, in Africa we were at, at one point, you know, you're seeing people that are, that are uh, critically ill, that have seen their families butchered in front of them by the Renamo gorillas, for instance, in, in Mozambique, and dying of starvation. This one little girl, Louisa, you know, she had been in, huddled in her hut for about a week, and she had seen her whole family hacked apart with machetes. She was on the verge of starvation. And, you know, two hours later we're singing and dancing with 200, 300 kids, that were in pretty rough shape themselves, you know, maybe a month, two months before. So it's amazing how resilient people are over there. But it always culminates in dancing and singing. So Life's a Highway is probably the closest I've ever come to a, uh, a you know, a, a dance rock song, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the ultimate form of expression, I think, in, of joy in the world, no matter where you go, is, well, is in that. So it's the closest I've ever come to writing a dance song. You know? <laughs> wow, it's obvious that trip had a profound effect on him. I love that he calls it his happiest song. Yes, and like a dance song. Like, he's so proud of it. Yeah, what a great tune. Here he talks about recording in Memphis. Now, you recorded the bulk of this album in in Memphis, and i got to ask you, Tom, was the spirit of Elvis in the room with you? Every every minute. Every every minute, minute, Denise. I thought so. You better believe. (laughs) You know, we went to, uh, uh, we did it at Ardent. Arden Studio, and it's it's very it's an infamous place because you know REM's recorded there. Uh, uh, Robert uh, uh, Cray, um, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Almond Brothers were there when we were there. <clears throat> Whole set of stories to that one, <laughs> and 
it's just it's got all this heritage to it this building and i thought it'd be like sun recording you know it'd be real funky funky old desk and cue system and linoleum floor and you know sort of look like a a book depository or something you know because that's what sun's like and um but it's like a mortuary you know you the whole front of the facade it's all you know modern brick you know and these these uh, strange arch things but it, you know it looks like it sort of part of a of a of a, a small mini mall or something and uh, but you know it just goes to show you that it's the people that make the place because the people working there are all real hip people and it, and they've got this yeah there's a real relaxed air about it you know just this southern memphis soul thing that uh, that you you feel and that's one of the reasons we did it with joe hardy is because he had that spirit about him you know there was no way i mean we got bogged down you know here and there you know we because you know i can be a pain in the butt in the studio and the no. consummate yeah no i would never believe and a consummate per- perfectionist you know we're we're sitting there at one point and we're, we're kind of analyzing a drum track and we're getting real heavy you know and joe would swing around in his seat and he'd say yeah, but aren't I the coolest guy you've ever met? He just break this the whole the whole you know the room would kind of crack up just the way Joe would deliver it in that Kentucky drawl, you know. Never took anything too seriously, and and that's the vibe we wanted to to uh, to retain for the record. Even some of the heavier songs had a you know a, a good good vibe about them when we recorded them. We never got bogged down in trying to be too analytical about it. We just wanted to go for some good performances. Why am I picturing you know? lava lamps here while you're telling this the, story? There was, Joe, Joe collects lava lamps, plus oh, all really? kinds of Elvis paraphernalia, <laughs> Graceland beanies, <laughs> you know, for, for a couple of takes. Uh, you know, a couple of us were wearing the Graceland beanies, and, uh, you know, so it's, it, it was a good vibe. I don't have a Graceland beanie, do you, Tom? <laughs> I have Graceland memories. Have You've been, right? Oh, yeah. Well, let's that's, hope that's so. Wrote Black Velvet. Yes, I was going to say, let's hope yeah. you've been there after all that. When you wrote, <laughs> you write Black Velvet, Alana sings it. It's like, it's it, it drips with Memphis. Like, you can see the heat haze coming off the road <laughs> on that song. And I oh. asked you if you've been to Graceland. That's funny. But let's talk a little bit more about Graceland. Because my experience was that, have I been there once or twice? I've been there twice. And I think both times, I was kind of hit the same way. There's that... There's that kitschy tackiness to it as you're walking through. And, oh, do you think? <laughs> yeah. And then you go into the basement where they have that kind of that hall of fame, all of his records. And, and, right. and, and that's kind of impressive. Like it's really impressive because it's a large quantity of all the, you know, the achievements that he's done and all that. And every once in a while, you'll get a glimpse of a room that you're not supposed to walk into. And that kind of gets you a little bit because you're kind of going, well, that was Elvis's private area. And then you know what happens at the end. And it's mind-boggling how the mood changes at the end of that tour. When you go outside? When you go outside and you stand in mm-hmm. front of the grave of Elvis Aaron right. Presley, right? And it's just, all of a sudden, everything becomes muted. You know, the jokes and the kitschiness and the tackiness kind of all drifts away. And there you are, staring at his grave alongside his father, I think, and a few other relatives. And he's in the middle there with the flowers strewn all about. And it's a really touching moment, you know? And it really does get you, especially if you have yeah. an appreciation for him and his music. Well, it does, because, I mean, I was there what they call Elvis Week, which is, I guess, in August every year. It was the 10th anniversary of his death. Right. So there were a lot of people. And it was kind of a raucous crowd. Mm -hmm. But as they approached the graveside, I mean, it became very, very somber. I don't know if I ever told you this, that Susanna Hoffs told me that she wrote Everlasting Flame based on the Everlasting Flame at Graceland. Wow. Is there... 
Okay, now we were talking about Tom Cochran, were we not? We were. (laughs) Shall we again? (laughs) Yes, let's keep going. Let's keep going, because this is great stuff as well. Here's how Tom sees his role on stage. And you you look, um, I don't know, like you're strapping this... I mean, it's almost like Guitar Hero time for you out there a little bit. Does it feel like Yeah, I'm having fun. I mean, you know, we do a long show now, you know, a little over two hours, and and, uh, it seems really short, and that's a good sign, because it shows that you're having a good time. And part of that is that I don't feel like I'm posing. You know, I think that... It's really tough when you're a friend, and a lot of people go through this, you know. I think people like uh, like Bono from U2 straps on a guitar now. I think every front guy goes through that period where you get tired of just being this 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 figure out front. You know, you want to do something substantial uh, and make a substantial contribution as a musician. Oh, I love it. He's not posing, because you can see how posing and putting up a front would be kind of exhausting in the long run. And he seems to have kind of come to terms with just being himself on stage and just rocking out. Yeah, I think it would be contrary to his personality. Yeah. There's a there's a real straight ahead aspect of Tom that mm. I I love. Yeah. He's he's a fantastic performer and that voice, oh my god. Yeah. He says his roots are as a singer-songwriter more than a rocker. Just feels like everything's going right for you right now. Yeah, this is a major no, role are, here. Things are uh, you know, the universe is unfolding as you know, it should. Yeah, just, yes. Uh, it's real nice when when things fall into place like that. This is what Ten records in, I guess, about 17 years for you now at this point. Was there ever a time when you felt like packing it in, like it's just not going right? And I mean, there might, there's got to be downs with the ups. Once or twice a week. Nah, come on. <laughs> no, it's... it's uh, <laughs> yeah, I feel real real lucky and privileged to, uh, to be able to do what I, I love for a living. And I've gotten to that point now. I think when you're... When you're starting out, and you know, I think when you're, you're you know, 21, 22, you take a lot for granted, and you figure that, you know, uh, you're immortal in a lot of ways. I think everybody goes through that stage, and um, you know, I really enjoy what I do now. I, I you know, for the first time, I think, um, you know, the last five years I've enjoyed performing never as much as now. I'm very comfortable with it. Um, I I love my fans. You know, these people out here. You know, the fans are always re- have been really supportive but even more and more in the last you know uh um the you know the last couple of albums it's just been it's been great so i feel privileged to be able to do what i do for a living i mean it's um you know if 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 you can do what you really love for a living then i think god's smiling on you so there you uh, go yeah yeah this morning i was reading in the in the globe following the show you did in toronto and they they talked about you know you being in the same ballpark a little bit with you know the legacy of canadian performers uh chilliwack kim mitchell on and on and on who uh, are really huge in in canada and um i know that this crowd right here would be really thrilled if if suddenly we had yet another ambassador in a major way south of the border there does that i mean how do you feel about all that is it well, I feel that, that, in a sense, that's true. There's been a lot of great Canadian rock and roll bands. We've lasted longer. I don't know if people keep track of this sort of thing, but, you know, I, I've been around for 12 years doing it, and, and the fans have always been there supporting it. The media's, media always hasn't recognized that, you know, so, and it's built as well. You know, it's been amazing. But I think for about six or seven years there, Red Rider was a real strong touring entity. And now this band's proven to be a, t- a strong touring entity so uh we stood the test of time you know uh, that way we're survivors and in a sense in the states you know uh, uh there's you know songs like lunatic fringe are, are pretty pretty big aor songs down there it's one of the top five aor songs requested aor songs of all times that's oh, album radio number two just number after two. money yeah. pink floyd yeah. yeah and um so it's it's uh 
So we have a, a strong cult following, more so than some of those bands. And but they're they're great bands. You know, Chilliwack was a wonderful band. I mean, there's there's a strong legacy there. I don't. My heritage is a, is as a singer songwriter. So I come I'm coming through the back door with this the rock thing. I relate more to kind of Neil Young in a sense that Neil can write those beautiful acoustic folk rock oriented songs plus he can rock and roll with the best of them <laughs> and he can melt your fill yeah next and, day. and that's that's what i relate to i think the rock part is the therapy part you know <laughs> if i had to get in front of an audience and do two hours with acoustic guitar i think i'd lose my mind you know i probably have an ulcer by the end of the week you know <laughs> but so the rock and roll part is is a great release and it's a lot of fun and it's you know the the kid inside of all of us i think wants to do that so that that's the boy inside the man part, you know. Mm. So my heritage is a bit different than a lot of those artists, you know, in that I do have that that folk rock uh, uh, heritage behind me, and I relate to the Bob Dylans and the Leonard Cohens and the and, and you know those those artists. Those are the ones that really got me hooked on this business. Do you think you're, you're shedding more layers every time because these these albums are, are more and more of you all the time? Every every new record that comes out. I think I'm becoming more less less afraid of of being personal in, in some of the work. Um, I think, you know, I'm writing less in the third person narrative and some of the work, and, and more from a personal perspective. Yeah. <laughs> so you're not editing yourself as much anymore. <laughs> yeah, I figured. What the heck, you know? Take me as I am, you know. I'm there as, you go. Okay, not, well, we'll afraid. take all we I'm can get. I'm not afraid to to, uh, <laughs> to lay it on the line that 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 way as much as I might have might have been eight years ago. He talks about the song Lunatic Fringe and why it still resonates. You know, it's funny with all the things, you know, we were down in Louisiana uh, shooting the uh, video for No Regrets. David Duke was running for office. And at the time I went down, I just had had heard about him vaguely. Uh, But all of a sudden you come home and and the whole thing gathered momentum. And uh, it's scary when you see guys like that coming you know, coming out of the woodwork again, and it's a sign of the times. You know, it the economy gets bad, and people start pointing fingers, yeah. trying to find scapegoats. And it's not unlike Nazi Germany. That's what happened mm. back in the late twenties and the thirties. And that's what I wrote "Lunatic Fringe" about because the uh, is it the Oscar Wilde quote that those that uh, that don't remember history are doomed to repeat, to repeat it. it. Yeah, and uh, we always have to be vigilant because freedom. Uh, is is not something that is, it's it's not something that's a, it's you know that we're we're born with and and will keep all the time. It's something we have to be vigilant for. So that's what Lunatic for, you know Fringe was about. And uh, you know, ten years later, the song still is relevant, mm-hmm. unfortunately, in, yeah. in a lot of ways. Well, I want to take you back a little further than Lunatic Fringe, actually, back to to Lynn Lake and your first guitar. Now, is this story I keep hearing about you selling your dad's fifteen hundred dollar train set for forty bucks actually true? No, I don't. It wasn't worth that back. I don't know what it would have been worth, but yeah. But he yeah, did. Did do, he know you were selling it? Those, or he just went in and said, "I think I'll well, just borrow yeah, this." Yeah, and, I mean, yeah, it was one of those. I was what twelve or thirteen, and uh, God, I had to have a guitar. So there's, no other, there's just no other way. You went down to the, the great train, shop. great train, train robbery. robbery. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was fortunate enough to chat with Tom on a couple of occasions. And one of the things that I was fortunate enough to have a chance to say to him is that, Tom, everybody knows that you're a great songwriter, like a great lyricist, and he's very thoughtful. But the musicianship and the sonic quality and the diversity of the instruments that he uses and just how, like, modern 
and yet classic some of those songs sound like. Like that intro to White Hot by Red Rider with those keyboards, right? And I know that he, that, that was a band, that wasn't just him. But those songs were well-produced, and the musicianship is excellent, and I don't think he's honored enough for his musical abilities as much as he is his songwriting abilities. What's your favorite song of Tom Cochran's? I really loved White Hot. It sounded so fantastic on the radio in the late 70s. Mm. Um, mm. And I loved Lunatic Fringe. Like when that came out, it was so dark and it was so brilliant. Life's a Highway, of course, is great. Those are definitely my top three. For me? Yeah. Boy Inside the Man. Great song. Great song. I love that song. And it's so powerful. Uplifting. Yeah. All right. This meeting of the Tom Cochran <laughs> Fan Club is now adjourned. From one of the best debut albums of all time, in my opinion, that's The Look of Love by ABC. Tom, with Lexicon of Love, they launched their career in 82, and it was a platinum-selling number one UK album, which also went platinum in Canada. Now, coming from a rich music scene in Sheffield in the north of England, they hit around the same time as The Human League, The Thompson Twins, and Heaven 17. Now, the album was anything but what had dominated the charts just a few years earlier when punk ruled. It was lush, it was orchestrated, tongue-in-cheek lyrically, and great to dance to, as long as you didn't call it disco. (laughs) That's right. The arrangements were done by Anne Dudley, who, not necessarily a household word, but she did go on to form The Art of Noise the following year. Wow, right. Yeah. And that was with, if I'm not mistaken, Trevor Horn at the controls as the producer. And Trevor Horn created this sonic landscape for ABC and Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I know Frankie Goes to Hollywood is considered kind of like a novelty act with the song Relax, but you listen to the sonic brilliance of that album by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, or The Lexicon of Love by ABC, and you will see exactly what I'm talking about with Trevor Horn as a producer. I think he also did Owner of a Lonely Heart for Yes, didn't yes, he? Yes, that's right, and he was in the Buggles, too. Wow, <laughs> a fountain of knowledge. Tom, singer Martin Fry and keyboardist sax player Stephen Singleton arrived in Canada in advance of touring just for a promo tour, and they had lots to say. It's the first time we've ever set foot on Canadian soil, and uh, we thought, as you said, we'd come and uh, introduce ourselves personally to as many people as possible. Well, you're over here rather quickly because uh, all, all this has happened... Um, you know, you burst upon the Canadian music scene, as it were. Um, yeah, I think impact's uh, the most important thing. I think it's exciting to come to a place when people are still open to new ideas and they've uh, not forged opinions on ABC yet. Uh, we're here to, uh, I don't know, supply information generally so that people can get to hear the records and uh, make up their own minds about us. They developed slowly in the UK. I think in the UK uh, we didn't exactly burst on the scene so much. We were around quite a long time before we recorded a record and everybody had a lot of preconceived ideas about what ABC were going to be about. You know, they said, oh, they're going to be so great and whatever. And uh, we had to live up to a lot of expectations. Well, why was that? What was it in, in your background? I think what Stephen's referring to is the amount of press we had before we'd signed a recording deal on the strength of uh, live dates we'd done. Mm-hmm. So um, it's nice just uh, appearing out of the blue, if you like, uh, here, because um, it's nice to hear what people have to say. The scene in Sheffield in the north of England was vibrant. What is it about Sheffield? 
um, that uh, brings forth, I guess, so many people. I mean, it's it's the place that Human League heard and Heaven them. Seventeen sort of, of them. hail from, as well as uh, some other bands like Cabaret Voltaire yeah. and the Comsat Angels, who would yeah. be familiar to those people who haunt the import shelves. Mm-hmm. What is it? Does it have a very sort of happening scene locally? There's um, no mountains to look at. <laughs> I think it's more that the, it's a fairly quiet city in the north of uh, England, and you have to create your own entertainment. Really, you get. A film like E.T. will probably appear in um, five years' time. So until then, we have to uh, entertain ourselves. And people just form groups. There's not that much work. Most people are out of work. So it keeps you off the streets. It keeps you away from crime. And uh, it's quite an honourable uh, pastime. I think uh, they put something in the water supply as well. <laughs> That's my theory. A big conspiracy, huh? Mm. Uh, yeah, job creation schemes, I think. Everybody's yeah. turning to entertainment, even the sort of old men are sort of dressing up in strange clothes and <laughs> jigging around, <laughs> scaring people. That is the Sheffield scene, really. Just a lot of closet actors and performers and entertainers, really. Of course, the topic of disco had to arise. <laughs> I found here that a lot of people who are, are sort of very into hard rock are having a very difficult time with a lot of the new sort of danceable music that is uh, that is coming out because... A lot of them, God forbid shall I say it, label it as disco. Yeah, that's an unfortunate thing, really. Our music's not simply for discotheques, it's for restaurants, it's for dentists, it's for taking home, playing on your home stereo, it's for ghetto blasters, Walkmans, everything, really, for the radio stations, (laughs) for all sorts of different uh, people. And that uh, just to label um, a music as this, as that, is just a sad categorization, really. They had some thoughts on disco versus dance music. Well, where do you draw the line, though? Um, is it because uh, the stuff that came out under the heading of disco is so slick and it has that, you know, sort of same constant beat, and even though the danceable music has the prominent beat, it is different? Uh, we're not really a disco group uh, hook, line, and sinker. I think you draw the line whether something's good or bad. Do you know what I mean? Whether uh, Ted Nugent's making good or bad records, whether on ABC are making good or bad records. But um, that gets very subjective because it's what you know, basically what I like or what I don't like or what you like or what you. Well, don't that's like. right. You know, yeah. it, see, there's not so many categories in the UK. Just everything gets played, and uh, things that people like get played more. Things that people don't like get put in the dumper, and there's not like, oh, well, this is soft rock, this is hard rock, this is whatever rock, this is punk, this is disco, this is. Uh, intelligent disco this is stupid disco this is black white music or whatever there's not those sort of things don't really occur they just play every record um you know every record stands up to each other record and there's not so many sort of defined categories that you that you fall into see in the uk abc is just known as abc music and that's that's it really nobody says well you're a disco group or a new dance group or anything like that. I love this. Here's a detailed self-description. Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) if you've not heard any of our records as yet and you're looking for beat music with melodies, BPMs, technology, ancient and modern synthesizers, string sections, beautiful uh, songs, I don't know, you could uh, look no further than ABC. All right. But um, with a bit of hard rock in there somewhere. This is a band with big plans. What are your future plans then? What Are you going to come back here and, and perform at one time or other oh, in, yeah. in the near future? Certainly. We're going to come back here with a 16-piece group with uh, six string players, um, two piano piano players, 
a fair Are you putting me on, really? Six oh, no, people? no, no. I wouldn't. Would I lie to you? I don't no. know. <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Okay, Believe good. me. Well, all you have to do is walk into the hall and I shall confirm uh, the truth. 16 um, people? Around the uh, four members, the four corporate right. members of ABC, David Palmer, Stephen Singleton, Mark White, and myself, Martin Fry. We'll be f- performing throughout Canada uh, mid-December, I should think. ABC, Martin Fry, Steve Singleton from around 1982, just as the Lexicon of Love is making history as just a great dance album. And as I was listening to those clips before I sent them to you, Christopher, I actually put Lexicon of Love on the on my stereo. And one of the things that I noticed that I'd never noticed before is how orchestrated it was, how many strings were on that album and how magnificent it sounded. It gave it such a rich flavor and the dance, like it really Pounds as a dance album, but it's so beautiful, and his lyrics are good. His performance is a little bit over the top, but that melodrama just adds to it and makes it great. It's too bad. Like, I love that album so much. It's too bad that um, the following albums never quite made it as big. Uh, They did have a few other hits, including When Smokey Sings, which was a good song, but they never quite matched the artistry of the lexicon of love. This is Famous Lost Words as we dig deep into our interview archives to see what gems we can come up with. I found these two clips of the late great B.B. King considered one of the three kings of blues guitar, along with Albert King and Freddie King. These clips are from 1977, and one of them is only nine seconds long, but it's great. It's B.B. talking about his legendary guitar, which he nicknamed Lucille. Well, this is Lucille the 14th. I've had it for about 12 years. What happened to number one? I got ripped off of it. <laughs> <laughs> so many stories of favorite guitars getting stolen from their owners, and we'll talk more about that. But let's continue with B.B. King. B.B. was born on a cotton plantation, was taught his first three guitar chords by a minister at his church. He started playing, he was very drawn to the radio as well, and he eventually became a DJ, calling himself Beale Street Blues Boy, B.B. for short. B.B. had many ups and downs in his career, but this clip, again from 1977, just illustrates the importance of awards in acknowledging and encouraging artists, even if they are living legends. There may be five or six bad things happen, but one good thing can wipe out all the memories of the bad. Mm -hmm. So I've had some good things happen, for instance, I think 70 or 71, I won a Grammy Award, so that knocked out a lot of the bad things. And um, I had a hit record in 68 that was the biggest that I've ever had, The Thrill Is Gone. I was honored uh, in, I think, about 74, uh, with an honorary doctor's degree of, of humanities from Tougaloo College mm-hmm. in my home state of Mississippi. And then just May the 17th of this year, 77, uh, I was honored at Yale University with an honorary doctorate degree in music, which is the second uh, black that I've ever had it. Duke Elton was the first and I'm the second one. So, And uh, I was also honored the same day with the ex-president of the United States, uh, Gerald Ford, and I received mine before he got his. <laughs> so, knowing how much those awards meant to him, 
and helped him kind of wash away the memories of the bad times. Imagine how meaningful the next 38 years of his life would have been for him when he received dozens more awards, including being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award, a Kennedy Center Honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and several honorary doctorates. Okay, so let's continue with stories of stolen guitars, which began a few minutes ago with B.B. King talking about how his first guitar got stolen. That was a guitar named Lucille. So many famous guitarists have been ripped off, from Eric Clapton to George Harrison to Tom Petty, to listen to this, a recent discovery of the very famous guitar owned by Peter Frampton that was on the cover of Frampton Comes Alive. That guitar was lost after it was damaged in a plane crash but has since been recovered and repaired. And yes, Frampton will take it with him on his upcoming tour. That was decades ago. Frampton just got it back. Paul McCartney's very famous Hofner bass, the one that looks like a violin, that was stolen in 1969 during the Beatles' Let It Be sessions and has never been returned. By the way, rumor has it that that bass guitar belonging to Paul McCartney is in Ottawa. So, to our CFRA listeners, keep an eye out for that legendary Paul McCartney Hofner bass. 40 years ago, this I hate this story, 40 years ago, Roseanne Cash lost a guitar at an L.A. airport. I bet you can see where this is going. It was given to her by her dad, Johnny Cash, and it was signed by him to my daughter, Roseanne, from dad. And it was taken from her. Can you imagine turning around? I think it was just on the uh, just on the sidewalk outside the airport. She's probably going back to the to the trunk to grab something else, and the guitar is gone. I cannot imagine her devastation as she lost that, and it's never ever been returned. This last story is a bit of a better tale. A few weeks ago, April Wine leader Miles Goodwin was reunited with a guitar he lost in 1972. That's 47 years ago, after it was involved in a car crash that damaged a lot of equipment, including his bands and the band's Mash McCann. Kind of an ironic name there. Miles thought it had been destroyed, but people kept telling him they had seen the guitar. I guess it was really unique, and I think he'd had his name, Goodwin, embossed on it in a really unique way. So in December, Miles finally got his hands on it and is honestly so thrilled to get it back. I saw a video of him talking about it. He was virtually in tears, and he says he's still hurt by the fact that it was stolen from him. That guitar holds a lot of meaning to him, and he was devastated when he lost it, thrilled that he got it back. So there are so many examples of lost or stolen guitars, and that's just a few of them. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Christopher had a great idea, and it's called They Should Have Known Better. So moments <laughs> in music history that the artist should have reconsidered. Go ahead, Christopher. Tom, you know that heartbreaking moment when your favorite artist makes a misstep that you know is going to haunt them and you for a long time to come? Mm-hmm. You look for a reason. The label insisted on this song to boost faltering sales or... You know, they're trying to give a forgotten band member his moment in the sun. Hello, Ringo. But when they sing in a Jamaican accent and they're not Jamaican, (laughs) there's little to be done except for waiting for the next wave of musical history to hopefully wash this agonizing moment away. And even the greats are fallible. Let's start at the top. The Beatles' biggest gaffe in many minds is Revolution Number 9. Now, you can hit fast forward on the remote, but back in the day, 
There it was, in all its 8 minutes and 22 seconds of glory, sandwiched between Cry Baby Cry and Good Night. <laughs> now, as twisted as number 9 is, the most unforgivable moment for me on the otherwise splendid Abbey Road is Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Bang, bang, Maxwell's Silver Hammer came down upon her head. Bang, bang, Maxwell's Silver Hammer made sure that she was dead. Oh, man. Oh. Mm, sure, sure. It's hooky. It's, it's even memorable in kind of a weird way. But I never need to hear those ridiculous lyrics again. <laughs> that cloying vocal. Or that bloody anvil sound. <laughs> By the way, somebody was sensible, went and declined to play on it. He called it Paul's granny music. John called it that? Yep. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> okay, so speaking of Paul, I have a couple of should have known betters by him. One was <laughs> doing The Girl Is Mine with Michael Jackson. It was oh, just too yeah. sucky, too insipid. And doing Say, Say, Say with Michael Jackson. Both of those songs should not have been done by Paul. I think he should have been just digging a little bit deeper. They were too fluffy, too limp. And uh, I don't think they suited him at all. I have a, I have a few more. I have actually three more should have known betters. First of all, David Lee Roth should never have left Van Halen right after the release of 1984 and the success of that album with Jump and all those other great songs and the tour that followed. He should have stuck around for at least one or two more albums. Uh, so you're for, not you're not down with just a gigolo? That's not working for no, you? No, that was fine. That was fine. But that should have made <laughs> him happy as a solo artist. That should not, under any circumstances, have given him the uber confidence, the overconfidence that he had to uh, embark on a solo career based on a note-for-note cover version of a Louis Prima song. That was not good. Or the note-for-note cover <laughs> version that he did of California uh-huh. Girls, right? Yeah. Like, those were I fun. I knew that was coming. Those were fun, but that's not your career, man. And you are not like a Vegas person. Like, I know he was, but in Van Halen, it worked on his own. It was way too much. It was over the top. It wasn't interesting. So I think he made a terrible mistake. And also, it would have delayed... Sammy Hagar being in the band, which to me wasn't a great thing. They wrote he wrote some awful lyrics for um, <laughs> uh, what's that? What's the first song? Da, not what it takes. Why can't this be love? He wrote Why can't this be love? And the line Christopher it's one of the laziest bits of songwriting <laughs> in music history. Only time will tell if we stand the test of time. <laughs> That's Is that what it says. Horrible. Adam, just play it. There you go. It's an awful lyric. Yeah. It's so lazy, right? Oh, I think that's man. a redundancy officially. You know, there's a new song. Well, not a new song. There's a song up from the last year, uh, B.B. Rex and Florida Georgia Line, meant to be. And the line is, talk about lazy songwriting. The line is, maybe we do, maybe we don't, maybe we will, maybe we won't. And I hate songwriting like that. It is so easy. It is so vacuous. It is so meaningless. And that's what that line reminded me of, that Sammy. I think it was Sammy who wrote that song, Why Can't This Be Love? So... David wow. Lee Roth would have extended his career, would have propped up an, you know, another two, one or two albums with Van Halen. Not that they needed propping, but you know what I mean. They would have continued on their run, and they would have saved us from Sammy Hagar's first appearance with that band. <laughs> <laughs> okay, another one. Uh, Garth Brooks recording as Chris Gaines. Bad mistake. Bad move. Ooh. He should have known better. That's yeah. when he completely changed his look. He grew with a soul patch, which was yucky, and he r- tried to be a pop star. 
Just <laughs> ridiculous. And one more, the late Chris Cornell, who I love. I adore Chris Cornell, one of the great rock vocalists of all time. Tragic passing. He did a dance album with Timbaland, and it is horrific. That he one did? is a should have known better. Play a part of that, I... uh, Adam. It's a song called Part of Me. So there you go. (laughs) And it's not good. So that was a bad mistake by him at a time when you wanted. And also, when you heard he was working with Timbaland, you kind of going, okay, okay, maybe this will be okay. And then it came out and it was as bad as you dreaded it would be. So those are some of my thoughts. You have one more for They Should Have Known Better. I do. To wrap up the debut episode of They Should Have Known Better, this for me is perhaps the most egregious one that I can think of. And it was by one of the true architects of rock and roll, a man who ranked fifth on Rolling Stone's greatest artists of all time and who has three songs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Top 500. Okay, he's had all those hits, all that acclaim, all that money. Mm -hmm. Why did Chuck Berry have to record my (laughs) ding-a-ling? Oh, my ding-a-ling, everybody's singing, I want to play with my ding-a-ling-a-ling, oh, my ding-a-ling, my ding-a-ling, I want to play with my ding-a-ling-a-ling. Next to We Built This City, it could be the worst number one in the history of the uh, Billboard Top 100. Yes, it was number one on Billboard, but by the way, my fellow Canadians, don't get too sanctimonious. Right. It was number one in Canada as well. Oh! Boy. And you know the saddest thing of all for me? Right. I mean, is the fact that it was Chuck Berry's only number one. Oh, I know. With all those songs, yeah. That's just There's tragic. A, there was a British morality campaigner named Mary Whitehouse who tried <laughs> to get the song banned. <laughs> she wrote to the BBC, One teacher told us of how she found a class of small boys with their trousers undone singing the song and giving it the indecent interpretation which, in spite of all the hullabaloo, is so obvious. (laughs) Okay, listen. There's only one person who can do a better British accent on that than you, and that's your buddy Mike Myers. So, if we ever have Mike on this show then he has to read that line, okay? He has to do his Mary White House line. Very good. They should have known better on Famous Lost Words. Well, that does it for this week's episode of Famous Lost Words. Thanks to our technical producer, Adam Karsh. Thank you, sir. And our executive producer, Rob Farina. Also, thanks to the gang at Orbit Media, including Rob Basile, for their help in getting our show to as many ears as possible. And today, I am in colorful Mar Vista, California, home of... Rich Corinthian audio. (laughs) And my host is Paul Mercier. Paul, thank you for having us here. Now, you can help simply by listening to past episodes on the iHeartRadio app. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook, too. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Talk to you next time on another edition of Famous Lost Words. (laughs) 